Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. From pancake breakfasts to ice cream socials to frigid walks to knock on doors, the New Hampshire primary is a tradition unlike anything else. Politics kind of runs through the the bloodstream in New Hampshire in a way that I, I find it doesn't in any other state. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll talk to the author of a new book that explores the passion behind the first in the nation primary. Also engineering the ancient forest habitat of an early New England, in part by knocking down trees. We needed to take it down to free up growing space for other trees, like that one right there, that nice big one. And in doing this, we create this great down log, which is habitat now for amphibians, small mammals, and vertebrates. We'll find out what's killing New England's moose. And what do you do if you're a basic research scientist and your work is under attack? Fight back. In order for us to actually be able to solve problems or make money or innovate, we actually need to know about the world. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, getting an early start on political tourism for the 2020 campaign. I would recommend, you know, people all around New England, once this thing starts picking up steam again, even if you don't live in New Hampshire, just kind of show up and check it out. It's, it's unlike anything else in politics. Vote first or die. But first, in the Northeast, ancient forests, woodlands that have grown undisturbed for centuries, are pretty rare. Less than 1% of those old-growth forests remain here. But these forests provide critical habitat for animals and plants and can help mitigate flooding. A new study finds that harvesting trees in a way that mimics these old-growth forests restores some of this habitat. But as Kathleen Masterson found out, there's a climate change benefit too. These engineered old-growth forests store a surprising amount of carbon. She went out to the woods to see how it's done. All right, we're going to go off trail here a little bit. It's a pleasantly sunny afternoon at the 500-acre University of Vermont Jericho Research Forest in northern Vermont. UVM forest ecologist Bill Keaton is literally walking me through his 15-year experiment. Using tree shears and backhoes, the researchers have engineered several plots of this middle-aged forest to look much more like an old-growth forest. More on that in a second. First, Keaton takes me to the control plot. It's five acres of untouched trees. The idea here is to measure how the forest would have grown if scientists hadn't tinkered with it. So all the trees are roughly the same age. There's a single layer in the canopy. There aren't a lot of interesting habitat features like dead and dying trees that are important for wildlife. Or it's just very uniform, homogeneous. All the trees in the study are about 150 years old. But in some plots, Keaton is trying to change their characteristics to mimic old-growth forest conditions. Keaton says he's trying to take these middle-aged trees and... Kind of nudge them along towards an older, more architecturally complex condition. After about a 10-minute walk of crunching through the forest floor duff, we get to the, quote, old-growth section of the forest. Keaton uses a longer technical term for it. So you're coming into one of the structural complexity enhancement units, and I want to see if you notice any changes as we walk in. Okay. Anything look different to you? 
Well, I do see an overturned giant stump, whatever you called that habitat. This is a tip-up mound. So we made this, and I'm particularly proud of it. A roughly 60-foot tree has been knocked down onto the forest floor, creating a tip-up mound, a flare-up of roots and dirt, and the cave-like ditch left underneath. This creates new niche habitat in the tipped-up roots. This would happen naturally over time, usually from wind or storms. But in this case, the researchers pulled over the tree using a cable. We needed to take it down to free up growing space for other trees, like that one right there, that nice big one that we're trying to crown release, so that one can grow to a really big size. And in doing this, we create this great down log, which is habitat now for amphibians, small mammals, and vertebrates. The researchers also girdled some tree limbs to create dead branch snags, which provide key animal habitat. Other trees were selectively harvested to create gaps in the canopy, letting in sunlight to the forest floor. The engineering technique succeeded in creating diverse habitats. But the kicker, Keaton says, it has also allowed the forest to store a significant amount of carbon. That's key to fighting climate change. Now, forests that are left alone, with no trees harvested, usually store the most carbon. But Keaton's study is finding that it is possible to manage a forest to maximize carbon capture and still keep it a working forest. This greater amount of carbon storage, as compared to the conventional treatments, was actually a combination of having left more trees behind in the first place and growth rates that were actually 10 percent higher in this treatment as compared to the conventional harvest. And that was really surprising. Keaton says after 10 years, the old-growth forest management plot stored nearly as much carbon as the unlogged control forest. This does not just have to be a science project. This is a, a very potentially very practical tool uh, that many forest owners could use. That's Fred Clark, the director of the National Forest Stewards Guild. Clark says Keaton's work shows landowners who are interested in managing their forests for habitat and biodiversity that they can do that and still make some income from the land both from harvesting select trees and... We have forest, primarily large forest ownerships uh, throughout the country um, are now taking advantage of the, the California carbon market by developing and registering what are called carbon projects or carbon offset projects. It's not just California. Quebec also has a market where forest landowners can sell carbon credits, though these markets are still in their infancy. Back at the woods at Jericho, Vermont, Keaton says he was surprised that the old growth management technique actually brought in decent revenue. So that was promising to us. Now, in absolute terms, again, we harvested about 60 to 80 percent less volume. This is not going to maximize your commercial revenue. It's just not. But in the right situation, for the right type of landowner, depending on their objectives, it might be something that they could consider. And if carbon markets continue to grow in the future, that would add even more financial incentive. That's Kathleen Masterson from VPR reporting. So there's a nice wilderness story there about something that might help to reverse climate change. Our next story is not so sunny. Imagine you're a moose in the woods of New Hampshire, and it's the 1990s. There's a perfect mix of young and mature forest and plenty of food. The times are good, and there's about 7,400 or so of you roaming in the Granite State. Today, there are only about 3,400 moose in New Hampshire, and the same steep decline is being reported in neighboring Vermont and Maine. The culprit, a nasty tick whose proliferation is brought on by climate change. Christine Rines is a wildlife biologist with the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. She's heading up a four-year study to learn more about how weather changes and forest management practices affect the moose population. Christine, welcome to Next. It's nice to be here. Thanks for calling. 
T- tell me about this study and, and how exactly it got started. So we actually started this study back in 2001 with a mortality survey. We recognized in the mid-90s that moose seemed to have plateaued, even though there was a lot of forage available. They weren't really growing uh, the population itself. So we started a mortality study um, thinking it might be due to winter tick. Ticks did come up as the primary source of mortality. At that point, we thought that was the worst it would be, that mortality level. I think the high point was about 50% of our calves. But over the intervening 10 years, we recognized that things were getting worse. So we worked with University of New Hampshire, Dr. Peter Peekins, We talked with Maine, got them to come on board, and Vermont just came on board this past year. And we are all working together to try and see whether moose density and cutting practices influence the ticks and try and figure out what the future may hold. In this area, we're all pretty familiar, say, with deer ticks, the carriers of Lyme disease. What's a winter tick? Oh, so... Uh, all ticks are horrible. <laughs> but winter tick are interesting. They they evolved with white-tailed deer, and they quest or get on deer in the late fall. The entire egg mass um, hatches out, and all of those ticks kind of link their legs together and quest as one big unit. So hundreds of ticks quest as one mass. I'm just going to stop you and say that sounds absolutely horrifying in every way. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So deer, because they evolved with ticks, they're what we call obligate groomers. And when the ticks get on them, they immediately groom most of them off. So deer tend to only allow a few ticks to live. The ticks live their entire life cycle on that host live on it throughout the winter time, and then drop off in the spring. Moose did not evolve with ectoparasites. They evolved far to the north where it's cold and long winters, so they're not very good at grooming. So when the ticks get on them, they all pretty much survive. Moose don't groom until the itching becomes a problem. And by then, it's too late. They will have thousands of ticks on them. So in the presence of moose, and as moose densities increase, so do the ticks. The other thing that helps ticks is shorter winters. So when our snow does not come until late December, which has been happening much more frequently, the ticks will be able to get on moose from when they start questing in September until you get permanent snowfall. And so what's happening is our winters have shortened by three weeks um, in the last 30 years, and at the same time, moose densities have increased, and we've basically set the stage for lots of ticks, which has caused moose to decline. And just to be clear, these ticks are 
feeding on the moose in, in the numbers of thousands, is there a disease component to this as well, or is it about an infestation of these horrible little creatures linking together? Yeah, so um, we've looked for all kinds of possible diseases. It's very rare to find anything wrong with these animals aside from the severe anemia and protein deficit caused by literally thousands of ticks. Upwards of 96,000 ticks have been counted on our moose. So they, they literally suck these calves dry and at a time of year when nutrition isn't exactly great. So we call April the month of death here because come April they have simply run out of protein in their bodies. They cannot replace their blood volume and they, the calves and occasionally adults start to die. Um, moose north of here, as long as their winters remain longer, moose will continue to survive. But here in New England, you know, we are on the southern edge of moose range. And so we are feeling the effects of our changing climate first for moose and uh, it's not pretty. <laughs> so what can we do about this? Is this purely a function of climate change, or is there something that you're looking at, maybe as, as crazy as it sounds, putting tick collars on moose? Mm. So you can't go out and put tick collars on moose. Um, we know for a fact that certain things will work. Burning the forest works. Um Ivermectin works, but it's dosage-dependent, and uh, in the face of just putting it out there um, in these, uh, they call them four-posters or uh, rollers, what they're finding is that they develop ticks that are immune to the, uh, the drug. So the things that we can do are the things that we don't want to do, and that is change our own carbon footprint on the environment. And while that may not help moose uh, in the near future, it will certainly reduce the changes that are coming. Given the stresses that, that moose in New Hampshire and across this region are under, do you think that legislatures should reconsider moose hunting. Do you think that that's a, a problem, an increasing problem, given the the large mortality numbers? No. Um, the interesting thing about this whole situation is as moose densities decline, um, the ticks themselves decline. So we have cutoff points at which point we will stop hunting. What we don't know, given these short winters, is will any lower density really help, or will the ticks simply do well as long as moose exist at all? So our hunt right now takes considerably fewer moose than are killed by automobiles each year. It's not hunting that is causing the problem. It is our changing environment. Mm. And, and for people who may listen to a story like this and say, well, that's too bad for the moose, but what does that really mean to me? Explain what role moose play in, in the ecosystem of, of New Hampshire and in northern New England. 
Well, moose certainly provide food for many of our predators, and they they also change our environment. They they keep clear cuts younger for longer periods of time, which is great for all kinds of birds. But the bottom line is, it's it's not going to create a big environmental issue for moose to disappear. Um, it's it's going to be sad, but it's not going to dramatically impact environment. There are deer, which will feed our predators and will do almost exactly the same thing. I think the important thing to note here is that moose are really kind of the tip of the iceberg, and they are an important warning for us that things are definitely changing. And it might be in our best interests to start to heed this change. Christine Rines, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. You can find photos from the Moose Study on our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, it's vote first or die. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. During the 2016 presidential election, Maine's second district kept things interesting, throwing a rare electoral college vote to Republican Donald Trump. But otherwise, our region has spared the intense attention and campaigning that's seen in battleground states like Ohio or Florida or Michigan. That is, of course, with one exception. New Hampshire and its first-in-the-nation primary. Pancake breakfasts and ice cream socials and frigid walks to knock on doors are all the hallmarks of the retail politics that presidential hopefuls have to engage in during primary season in the Granite State. Scott Conroy is a longtime political reporter who grew up in neighboring Massachusetts and became enamored with New Hampshire's political culture while covering presidential candidates crisscrossing the state. His new book about the primary is called Vote First or Die, The New Hampshire Primary, America's discerning, magnificent, and absurd road to the White House. I caught up with Scott at NPR in New York. Scott Conroy, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me, John. What fascinates you about the New Hampshire primary? From my very first campaign, when I was covering Mitt Romney's uh, first presidential campaign for CBS News, my first day on the trail was in New Hampshire uh, at a Labor Day parade in Milford, which is a small town. Uh, New Hampshire is a state filled with small towns. And I just picked up immediately that there's something different in the air in New Hampshire. And it's not just because of the primary. The state legislature in New Hampshire has 400 state reps. So if you were to, that's the biggest state house in the country, and obviously New Hampshire is a pretty small state. If you were to extrapolate that to California, let's say, um, in terms of population, they'd have to have almost 12,000 people uh, in their state house. Uh, politics kind of runs through the, the bloodstream in New Hampshire in a way that I, I find it doesn't in any other state. Um, and then you, you look at the history of the primary, uh, which I get into uh, in my book quite a bit. Um, it's been first in the nation since 1920. Um, so that's something that just really, even Iowa, let's say, <laughs> um, isn't replicated anywhere else. Of course, Iowa's first, but Iowa's caucus system is not the same sort of thing. And you, you right. outlined that. New Hampshire is really the first place where people get to vote in the way that we think in America voting right now. The, the secret ballot 
and it's it's very different from Iowa. What, what are some of the differences? Because I know you've spent some time in Iowa, too. Yeah, and I love Iowa, so no no offense to my many friends in Iowa. It's a, it's a it's a also uh, a unique state politically, and people there really do pay attention, and it's got its own thing going for it. And, you know, New Hampshire consistently has the highest level of participation um, of any state in, in the uh, – the nominating calendar. So over 50% of registered voters in New Hampshire actually voted in, in 2016, which is a huge number for, you know, when, before you get to the general election. Uh, in Iowa, it's something like 19%. It's always below 20% of registered voters actually bother to show up for the thing. And it's largely because uh, the caucus system is pretty onerous. New Hampshire, you show up, there's no early voting, there's no absentee, you got to be there on primary day, you vote, and that's it. How has it managed to to keep this first in the nation status? And why do you think that it's so important to the people of New Hampshire? Because a lot of other states have moved up their primaries to try to get closer to the beginning. Explain the story of how exactly it's, it's managed to hang on so long. Yeah, I mean, it began almost by accident. And it, it, it held the first in the nation primary status from 1920 on. And for the first half century of that, no one really paid that much attention to it, frankly. In 1949, the, uh, the the state legislature in New Hampshire passed uh, a, a law whereby people would, from that point on, vote directly for presidential candidates. Because up until that point, um, they were just voting for delegates. So there, were, you, there was literally a slate of delegates, and you would just pick which one you wanted to. And that's what constituted the primary. 52 was the first, um, really the first New Hampshire primary that people paid much attention to. And, and part of the reason was because, you know, the incumbent uh, Harry Truman actually lost the primary uh, to uh, a Tennessee senator named Estes Kefauver. Um And so, you know, fr- from that point on, getting into the, the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, there were consistently challenges every four years to New Hampshire being first um, from a variety of states, from the, both the DNC and the RNC. And I get into some of those specific examples in, in, in the book. But each time New Hampshire was able to to beat that back, uh, there there is a state law that's been in place uh, since the 70s that says New Hampshire must have the, the first primary, basically. Um, so uh, they've allowed Iowa to go first because they don't consider it to be a similar election is, is the language, quote unquote, that, that's codified in, in the state law. Um, so really the, the reason that they've been able to beat back these challenges over the years has been largely because of one man, uh, and that's Bill Gardner, who's the Secretary of State in New Hampshire and has been since 1976. Uh, and he's just been a really vigorous defender of, of that state law and of the primary itself. There, there, there's nothing that's set in stone indefinitely that New Hampshire always has to be first. It's always a challenge. And every four years, Gardner has to fight for it. Um, and every four years, he's 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 succeeded so far. Um, it's pretty remarkable, pretty remarkable record. One of the things that people around the nation think of when they think of the New Hampshire primary is this unusual and sometimes awkward spectacle of people who are probably pretty famous back home senators or governors, maybe don't have a national profile or maybe are very famous, right. having to walk the streets, yeah. walk into diners, walk into bars. And literally shake hands doing this this most basic of retail politics. 
t- tell me a story about one of those that struck you while you were writing this book, because I, I feel like that's the thing that catches in people's minds that no matter how powerful you are, you've got to go and shake Millie's hand on Main Street in Asheville yeah. or else it's not going to work. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, just just as a disclaimer, the 2016 campaign um is going to challenge that that notion because Donald Trump did not do that and he won. Um, you know, he 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 really did the opposite of what every expert in all the political class in New Hampshire says that you have to do to win. Uh, he held big rallies. He had a national media strategy, and it wasn't until the last week he had a couple of events in a diner and. You know, <laughs> just kind of for show, really. Um, he doesn't but, seem very comfortable in diners anyway. No, so. <laughs> yeah, and 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 that was you know he that was his strategy from the beginning, and to his credit, he executed it, and he was right. It won, it, it won the, the the primary for him. Um, but you know, the question is whether he is kind of a unique figure, which I think he probably is. And if you look back before Trump, um, and even if you look on the Democratic side with someone like Bernie Sanders, who really did build it up from a grassroots point uh, in 2016 and ended up beating Hillary Clinton by 22 points in New Hampshire, which is really just remarkable when you think about it. I mean, it, he was someone that almost everyone across the board thought had no chance uh, of winning the primary whatsoever. Um, to win by that margin against someone as, as well-known uh, as her was, was really remarkable. But I think, to me, the quintessential uh, New Hampshire figure is John McCain. And, um, you know, there's a story in my book. Of course, John McCain has won the New Hampshire primary twice in 2000 and 2008. And both times he had to come from behind in a really dramatic way. Um, and, and in both cases, he really did do it the, the, the old school, quintessentially New Hampshire way of shaking hands, meeting 12 people at a time at a, at a diner, um, at, a, at a pub, and just grinding it out. And, and I think, you know, if I, having interviewed John McCain and talked to him for this book, um, I think if he had it his way, he'd just spend all of his time campaigning in New Hampshire his whole <laughs> life. But I think, you know, the, the very first event that he had uh, in, in 1999 when he was running against, uh, you know, George W. Bush, who was thought to be at that point just an absolutely unbeatable juggernaut that and anyone running against him would have no shot because he had consolidated the, the establishment support uh, uh, in the party, and of course, he had a famous name and uh, had all the money. Uh, John McCain was really not well known at all then, um, and you know he did a, a a town hall meeting in Peterborough, which is a really kind of quaint, you know, which is a word that gets thrown out a, a lot in, when it comes to New Hampshire. But even for New Hampshire, it's a very quaint town uh, in the western part of the state. And they advertise it as uh, an ice cream social. And depending on on who you talk to, I, I've heard uh, figures ranging from. I think nine people to 20 people showed up, you know, and this is supposed to be John McCain's big New Hampshire launch. And, you know, he he sat there and he, he talked to those people for an hour and a half and gave them their pitch. And the, the idea was, you know, social media before social media. And so those 20 people talked to their 20 friends and then it expands out that way in concentric circles. And that's really how John McCain uh, was able to, to build his campaign in 2000. And it's interesting to, to just to show you how much he respected that process. Uh, in 2008, in the general election, um, you know, they knew they were behind and they, they, they every hour um, at that point in, in the days leading up to Election Day are very valuable for the candidates time. And John McCain's campaign the, the day before the general election in 2008 um, made a beeline all the way across the country to New Hampshire. 
Um, and, and they not not only that, they didn't just do a big airport rally in Manchester. John McCain insisted that they go back to the Peterborough Town Hall, where, where it all be, <laughs> began for him. You know, nine years before, uh, and he did his last event in, in 2008 there. That shows you how much New Hampshire really means to someone like that. You, you tell a story pretty early in your book that I think speaks more to the not just the quaintness, but the power of these individual interactions. Uh, you tell the story of a young man from the Congo yeah. and getting a chance to ask a question of, of Rand Paul. Can you just tell that story? Yeah. It, it, it is a powerful idea that uh, is laid out there. Yeah, well, I went on a walk um, in Dixville Notch, which a lot of people probably know is the f- famous um, little, you can call it a town. It's not even really a town. It's a, it's a location, uh, quote unquote, in far northern New Hampshire. It's about a three-hour drive from Manchester, and that's where they have the, the famous midnight vote. Um, so they get to cast their ballots before, right at midnight on primary day and on the general election day. And, and it's just one of those New Hampshire traditions that's kind of fun. Um, but I, I did a, a walk um, uh, in, I think, January of 2015, so about a year before the primary, with a group that was trying to advocate for campaign finance reform. And they were walking around the state, and um, I did the first leg of the walk, which was about 11 miles um, from the, this tiny town of uh, Dixville Notch to another tiny town of called Errol. Um, and it was in uh, January in New Hampshire, so it was it was kind of cold. It was a little in cold, northern New Hampshire. A little chilly. Yeah, and uh, one of the participants in the in the walk was a young guy from from the Congo who had been a, a refugee. He was one of the first people that I had heard in New Hampshire um, bring up. You know, he was he was a political activist, and he brought up uh, Bernie Sanders and how that you know the, he he hoped that some of these ideas that they were talking about, campaign finance reform. He hoped that someone like Bernie Sanders would actually run and, and give a voice to, to that. And I kind of, in my head, I dismissed it at the time. You know, it, of course, Bernie Sanders is not going to be relevant in this campaign. Shows you how much I know. And I think shows you how much, you know, the people that are involved on the grassroots level really do uh, have a leg up uh, more so than the people that uh, are, are, you know, sitting in uh, New York or, or Washington. <laughs> um, and uh, he was able to... Um, go to a, one of Rand Paul's uh, events and stand in front of a, someone that wanted to be uh, president of the United States and, and stand face to face to him and, and ask him a question. And that's what that's what makes New Hampshire unique. You know, these guys all start off, except for someone like Trump, speaking to small groups and they're trying to win your individual vote, like like in, you know, a, a, a town selectman race or, a, you know, a, a mayoral race in a small city. That's really what the feel is like. And so someone from that background coming from, you know, a, a, a place uh, um, thousands of miles away um, to be standing there in New Hampshire um, asking someone, a United States senator, a question that he wanted to know the answer to um, was was pretty powerful, I think. And that that's kind of what makes the primary great. Mm-hmm. So what do you see as we look ahead to the very important uh, 2020 uh, presidential race? Does New Hampshire play the same sort of role this time around, do you think? I think New Hampshire and its status on the calendar will be under attack this time around um, more than ever before, really, Um, especially on the Democratic side. This is a state that's 94 percent white, Mm -hmm. and it's one of the least diverse in the country. And it comes after Iowa, which is also 93 percent white. And so especially on the Democratic side where, you know, um, the the electorate is, is really diverse and the, and the country is becoming more diverse, it's it's becoming tougher and tougher for New Hampshire to justify that. But what always happens in the past is that the candidates themselves start heading up to New Hampshire and Iowa. And then 
they become advocates for for keeping the the current system in place because they're not going to you know go out there and say no I don't I don't I I, I want to up, upend the system when they're campaigning in New Hampshire sure right? so um I I just say that you know Bill Gardner still um, has his position and the state law is still what it is so. Um, I think there are going to be a lot of challenges uh, that we'll see over the next year or so. Um, but I, I wouldn't bet against New Hampshire. You know, they've always pulled it off and, and maintained their, their spot in the calendar before. That, that whole idea of, of going up there to float a trial balloon, you, you write about uh, an interaction you have with, with Jeb Bush in which he's clearly running already, <laughs> but he yeah. can't say that he's running. Right. And, and that's another part of the... I don't know if it's a mystique uh, circus that happens around the state, yeah. right? Because you're, they're clearly yeah. doing exactly if they're in New Hampshire. Yeah, it's clear that they're running. Well, yeah, and in the, the, the 2016 cycle, it was more ridiculous than ever because of the post Citizens United landscape. There was a situation whereby once a candidate said, "I am uh, a, a candidate for president of the United States," that candidate could no longer. Uh, collect money for the super PAC that was advocating on his or her behalf. And of course, as everyone will probably remember, Jeb Bush's super PAC raised about $100 million before he even entered the race, uh, which we all thought at the time would be a big juggernaut for him. Didn't turn out that way. Someone like Bernie Sanders, again, that just came in early on. It was like, yeah, I'm running, you know, and, you know, I'm running, to, I'm running to win. People respond positively to that directness and that authenticity you know you had candidates uh, I, I won't name other names but you know that that do the usual dog and pony show and people are just kind of sick of that because we can all see through it and it speaks to a larger point about authenticity um mm. so i think um this time around they'd be wise to just say if they're running just say they're running and get into it that that whole bernie sanders effect uh that you mentioned is interesting and new hampshire gave him a, a big start and it gave him a big win, and it showed us something probably that we should have paid a little bit more attention yes. to, that, that yes. America was ready to, to yeah. hear a Bernie Sanders, right. and the Democratic Party, at least the establishment, really wasn't, or and, they were saying they were And I would argue the same exact notion applies on the Republican side. Um, you know, uh, I, I think you could look at Trump's victory in New Hampshire and say that it was it was a warning to the rest of the country that this thing is real, and people were still dismissing the idea that he was going to a win the nomination and b even have a chance of winning the presidency. Remember, in the subsequent primaries, it was like, you know, Mar oh Marco Rubio finished third in South Carolina. That's that's the real story here. It's like, well, no, that's not actually the real story, and you're not paying attention to this dynamic that's going on on the ground. And I could see it in New Hampshire. There were a lot of um, people that I met in New Hampshire some of whom I write about in the book, that in the days and weeks, months leading up to the primary, we're trying to choose between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Because mm -hmm. if you're an independent voter in New Hampshire, you can vote in either the Democratic or Republican primary. And I thought that was fascinating. And it, it was just people that most of them probably didn't pay close attention to politics. They didn't have a well-defined political ideology, but they were just really sick of what, what had been going on in Washington. And both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were two guys that they could look at on a TV screen or turn out to their event and in 20 seconds realize this was something new and different. And the man, the establishments in both parties were just painfully slow to pick up on that mm -hmm. and how powerful it was. After a long time as a political uh, writer and reporter, 
you've gotten into television, you're moving out to California now. I guess I'm just wondering, as 2020 rolls around, are you going to be looking forward to going back to New Hampshire and staying in crappy motel rooms and drinking at bars and going to diners and talking I mean, to people? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether or not I'll be doing it as a reporter again. But I, I love, uh, I love the process. It's really uh, in Iowa too, frankly. Um, New Hampshire, it's a little easier. You know, my, uh, my, my wife was an embedded reporter for NBC uh, in the 2012 campaign, and she lived in a, a, a Hampton Inn in uh, Bedford, New Hampshire for, for, for eight months. So she really got to uh, experience that too. And some since then, you know, in this 2016 campaign, she and some of her friends, when I was still reporting on the campaign, showed up as kind of political tourists. And a lot of people do that uh, because it's just unlike anything else you'll see in American politics. And since New Hampshire is such a small state, geographically, you can get to 90% of the events um, within you know an hour drive of each other, and you can see Bernie Sanders in the morning, and then go see uh, you know Donald Trump that afternoon. Um, and so I would recommend you know people all around New England uh, when, once this thing starts um, picking up steam again, even if you don't live in New Hampshire, just kind of show up and check it out. It's it's unlike anything else in politics, and it and it really is it's 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 civic engagement at, at a grassroots local level. And I think that's, in the end, that's why I'm a believer in the primary. It really is just different there. And I think it's important now more than ever to preserve institutions like the New Hampshire primary in our, in our politics. The book is called Vote First or Die, The New Hampshire Primary, America's Discerning, Magnificent, and Absurd Road to the White House. And the author is Scott Conroy. Thanks for talking, Scott. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, John. This was fun. After the break, taking a stand for weird science. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. The National March for Science last weekend and the many satellite events around New England marked a departure for many scientists. Until recently, they didn't consider political activism a part of their jobs. But over the past few years, a growing number of researchers have faced political attacks about their work. And many say it's time to come out swinging. New England Public Radio's Karen Brown visited one scientist who's urging colleagues to step up and make the case for continued federal funding, even when the research sounds a little wacky. So I'm, I'm looking at this slide and I see mostly blue. Sometimes scientific um, research can be a slog, slide after slide of thinly sliced tissue under a microscope. Um, and so there's collagen and there's a little bit of fat. And sometimes it's pretty darn exciting. Holy cow. Oh, wow, Dara. Isn't this amazing? Oh, my goodness. I happen to be visiting biologist Patricia Brennan on one of those days. Her lab at Mount Holyoke College in South Hadley, Massachusetts, has just been delivered an orca whale penis. Return address is SeaWorld, where the animal, also called a killer whale, died of natural causes. It's enormous. Wow. Although Brennan has spent 20 years studying the sex organs of marine animals, she's never seen anything this big. It takes up an entire lab sink. Yeah, here. So this is the tip right there. You see the urethra at all or no? Brennan looks over the pink and fleshy organ with her lab assistant. It's still mostly frozen in a tight coil, so she slowly unfurls it. It's not super long. It's just wide. You mean the the shaft part or which? Brennan was so eager to start exploring that she forgot to put on her lab coat. It's not easy to procure this kind of specimen, and she doubts many others have. 
She'll be looking for clues to mating trends and evolutionary advantages. And just the fact that we just don't know what we're going to find, right, is so exciting. It's like, I don't know. Brennan is a basic scientist. That means investigating how things work and not necessarily applying that knowledge to a particular problem. When she's not looking at whale parts, she's best known for studying duck genitalia, a topic that's given her a somewhat eccentric reputation. At first, that was a good thing. She got noticed by other scientists who cited her work as influential in reproductive biology. But then the attention took a turn. Starting in 2013, several conservative websites accused her of using federal dollars on useless research. They were attacking everything, right? So they were attacking the science itself, like, what a waste of money. They were attacking uh, me as a person, like, I must be some kind of deviant to be looking at penises. Like, who does that? Brennan's is not the only strange-sounding research to face political ridicule. Among the targets of conservative pundits, studies of robotic squirrels, aquatic plants, and scientists who study water quality and shellfish and who once posted what they thought was a fun video of a shrimp scampering underwater on a mini treadmill. But we have one creative federal government. Here's Fox News a few years ago. This is a shrimp exercising on a treadmill. Martha, do you know how much we spent on this research? Much of the press was sensationalist and dismissive, without input from scientists. Still, Brennan says she understands why a layperson might not see how obscure studies are relevant to them. When people ask me that question, typically what they're asking is, how is this going to make money? Or how is it going to improve human health? In the short term, it will do neither. Basic science, like hers, goes into a well of knowledge that other scientists use over many years and could one day lead to a breakthrough. For example, observing rat mothers licking their pups led to dramatic changes in the care of premature human babies. A study on how honeybees forage led to better computer networks. In order for us to actually be able to solve problems or make money or innovate, you know, we actually need to know about the world. We need to know about how the world works. And she says it's high time for scientists to explain that. After Brennan's duck research was attacked, most of her colleagues told her to sit tight and wait for it to blow over. It turns out it's a really terrible idea. Because the attacks snowball, there's no counter-narrative, and the stakes for science have never been higher, as President Trump's budget threatens to dramatically slash funding for everything from health research to basic science. That blindsided many scientists who'd been quietly, some say naively, immersed in their work. They think basic research is an obvious good, and everyone understands that, and they sort of aren't able to understand why anyone would propose cutting something that everyone agrees is great. Historian Melinda Baldwin studies political attacks on science. While today it's mostly Republicans who argue against science funding, she says the trend started in the 1970s with a Democratic congressman, William Proxmire, who would give out what he called the Golden Fleece Award for projects he considered wasteful. It was becoming a little bit trendy to attack scientific grants that sounded like they weren't beneficial to the American public. What's made things worse over the last decade, Baldwin says, is the polarization of climate science, which has confused facts with politics and belief. It doesn't help that for years, scientists themselves have kept out of the political fray. Science was slow to react to the threat, and there are more threats. Jim Cooper is a longtime Democratic congressman from Tennessee and self-described science nerd. 
Cooper started the Golden Goose Awards in 2012, a spin on Proxmire's Golden Fleece Awards. But in the new version, the award honors examples of inventive, federally funded science. When you show that incredible discoveries were achieved by studying these arcane and unusual and weird-sounding things, that takes your opponent's ridicule away and actually turns it into a benefit. Cooper is strongly against Trump's proposed cuts to the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. He says the private sector, which profits from science, will never support research to the extent government can. So he encourages scientists to make a fuss outside their comfort zone. I would try to organize the science faculties. I would try to get them to cooperate first with each other because there's bureaucracy and jealousy sometimes. Mount Holyoke's Patricia Brennan is now a sought-after science activist. She gives lectures and writes articles urging scientists to defend what they do, including or especially the weird-sounding stuff. She'll be at the Science March in Washington, but what she'd really like to do is get back to the lab and take another look at that killer whale penis. That's Karen Brown reporting. Let's go to the soccer field next, where many of the best youth players in New England don't play for their high school teams, but on elite club teams. This sort of exposure can get attention from college recruiters, but those clubs also charge players' families about $1,500 per kid per year. New Hampshire Public Radio's Emily Corwin has a story about a soccer club with a different approach to high-level sports. It's an approach that's all about leveling the playing field. I can't remember a day without soccer, to be quite honest. Jared Barbosa is an elementary school guidance counselor, but he was raised by a pro soccer player, a Brazilian who competed all over the world before settling here in Nashua. Every Sunday, Barbosa comes here to the Dunstable soccer fields to play in an adult soccer league. 150 or so mostly Latino guys compete on different teams. They've been coming for years. It's an eventful Sunday here when when the adult league is playing because there's kids all over, there's family, there's food, there's music. It was here. On one of these Sundays, he began to realize something was wrong. Kids were kicking soccer balls on the sidelines. Later, he'd see them dribbling in the street or doing tricks on basketball courts. And and seeing the the level, the, the ability, the good players. The problem was they weren't playing on organized teams. Barbosa and his brother, a college-level soccer coach, started asking around. Well, it's too expensive. Nellie Serasso is just one of many parents whose kids were priced out of Nashua's club soccer scene. She grew up in Mexico and moved to Nashua 10 years ago. Her two kids are serious about soccer. They played for a while on the local rec team, but it was too informal. So she looked at the local club teams. But they run from $800 to $1,500 per kid per year, not including uniforms. Some offer financial aid, but the price tag itself can be a barrier. Today, Sidasso's kids play for a competitive club team run by the Barbosas. Sidasso watches her kids from the sidelines and banters with other parents. I, I love the coach because he's a strict, but he's nice, he's firm with the kids, and I think the kids they need that. This club costs $100 a year per kid. Siblings are half off, uniforms are included. The league has five teams, and last year two of them won the state championships. The Latin and Hispanic International Football Association, or LIFA as it's called, consists mostly of boys and men of color. But anyone can join. Any skill level, race, gender, income, ability to pay is welcome. Okay, last one. 
chest. Ready? Here we go. The club is demanding. You can see it in the footwork. Even nine-year-olds fake each other out and pass to open players across the field. Giovanni Quintana is on the under-12 team. They coach us hard. They don't want us to give up. They want us to be professional soccer players. For like, we could like get into the like professional leagues, like Barcelona and all of them. So that's why we train hard every single day. One reason soccer clubs are so expensive is they pay professional coaches. Jared and Hayden coach at a professional level, but for this club, they do it for free. To pay for tournaments and field time, they put on fundraising events and appeal to local sponsors. On the one hand, it really is about soccer, but it's also about something else. Kids are 400% more likely to go to college. Those who participate in, in, in extracurricular activities year-round are 400% more likely than kids who don't at all to go to college. 400%. I'm going to take that stat and run with it. Professional soccer was the Barbosa's dad's ticket out of poverty in Brazil. College soccer was these brothers' ticket to economic mobility in America. Jared says low-income kids should have a right to participate in high-level sports. To make sure they succeed, he gets to know players' school teachers, their parents. You get really involved in these kids' lives. Yes, yes, uh, really involved, and it's so invested. I mean, I can't even, like, sometimes I'm driving home after practice, I can't even, like, think, you know, I love these kids, man. Barbosa won't let America's pay-to-play system price his community out of the American dream. That's Emily Corwin reporting. And finally this week, remember this? Ah, yes, that music is from a video released as part of an $80,000 campaign to rebrand Massachusetts's Pioneer Valley as West Mass. Since the new name was announced in February, there's been, let's just say, a lot of pushback on social media. One YouTube commenter put it this way, It's nice that even in these divisive times, we can all come together and agree that this is very bad. So last week, the Greater Springfield Convention and Visitors Bureau and the Economic Development Council of Western Massachusetts, the groups responsible for the rebranding, announced that they're putting West Mass on pause. They're asking for feedback from folks both in the Pioneer Valley and outside of it in the form of an online survey where you can vote for West Mass or Western Mass. We've got a link to that survey on our website, nextnewengland.org. And if you missed our segment where we analyzed West Mass and the other New England branding campaigns with historian Walt Woodward, it's definitely worth a listen. You can find it on episode 31 of our show at nextnewengland.org or where you get your podcasts. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Neil Rauch at NPR in New York. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.